welcome to the Evidence-Informed Teaching Podcast. Are you a teacher wanting to improve your classroom practice and deliver excellent teaching through access to research? Do you have a passion for teaching and are looking to connect with other like-minded colleagues through professional discussions? The Charter College has partnered with TeacherTap to support teachers to deliver excellent teaching through access to research and we invite you to be part of this community. On this podcast you will hear from fellow teachers, research experts and you have the opportunity to be part of this professional discussion. You can find out more about the Charter College of Teaching and TeacherTap in the show notes and if you find this episode helpful why not share it with a teacher friend take a screenshot and post it on your social media or even better leave us a five-star written review hello my name's lisa maria muller i'm head of research at the chartered college of teaching and in today's podcast i wanted to tell you a little bit more about myself about the research department at the chartered college what we do some of the work that we've already done the impact it has had and what we're hoping to do in the next weeks months and years going forward Prior to joining the Chartered College, I trained as a foreign language teacher in Austria at the University of Vienna. Um, I trained as an English and Russian teacher in secondary schools. Teacher education looks slightly different um, in Austria than um, it does in the UK. So what we do or what we used to do, because it has also evolved since I first trained, um, is to become a secondary school teacher, usually choose two subjects that you want to specialise in. So in my case, that was English and Russian. um, And you study those alongside um, general pedagogy, but you also have subject specific pedagogy. And in order to become a secondary school teacher at the time, again, today that has changed a little bit, It takes you five years at university um, with a few internships in schools here and there, a few placements, and then um, a whole year of an induction period. We've got a mentor teacher. So um, after I finished uh, my my degree, uh, I worked as secondary school teacher in Austria in two different schools, uh, one public, one private. And uh, where I taught um, English and Russian um, across different age ranges, which I really, really enjoyed. And alongside that, I also started um, to to study for my PhD. I then moved to the UK where I worked as assistant to head of middle school in an inner London school and um, also as an English as an additional language assistant. Uh, But then I got a scholarship to continue my PhD full time, which I took up. And so I finished my PhD, which focused on differences and similarities between typically developing bilingualism and bilingual language impairment. So a little bit more about that, maybe. The issue at the moment is that most standardised language assessments that we use with children in order to see whether their language is developing or according to, um, to age norms are based on monolingual norms and not a bilingual norm. So when we now test a bilingual child that has got more than one language in their repertoire, Um, They can sometimes be misdiagnosed as having a language impairment when maybe their vocabulary scores, if only tested in one language, are below those of age norms or some grammar scores. So it's really in part of my PhD looked at um, what typically developing bilingualism looks like and how it differs from bilingual development in association with language with a language impairment in that case developmental language disorder in order to inform the development of more accurate um, language measures that take the bilingual language development um, into consideration. I finished my PhD I then joined the University of Cambridge as postdoctoral research associate where I worked um, under Principal Investigator Professor uh, Wendy S. Bennett, um, who 
uh, was in charge of a very large project looking into a foreign language learning from different angles. And that was really fascinating because it brought together neuroscientists and applied linguists, um, uh, people from the educational studies, um, as well as people from cultural studies. And we all started to look at the phenomenon of foreign language learning or language learning, bilingualism and multilingualism from various different perspectives. And that was even challenging at times because we had to break out of our disciplinary silos that we were so used to where it was, and we had to question some of the terminology that we were using um, and really open up. And it was really challenging. I enjoyed it a lot. And as part of this project, I studied the influence of age on language learning. Um, I went into primary schools and secondary schools and conducted some tests and students um, completed some surveys. So we got a better idea of their language learning experience. Um, we conducted some tests in primary schools with children learning French. We also conducted some um, tests and assessments uh, with people learning Polish as a foreign language. So that was really exciting um, to look at language development across different ages, across different languages. And at the same time, I also worked part-time as um, postdoctoral research associate at the University of York um, with Professor Emma Marsden, um, who at the time was leading a project um, that was all about the uh, setting up the OASIS database, which I strongly recommend um, to anyone who's teaching languages and anyone who's interested. Um, it's an open access database. Um, that publishes research summaries of the latest research articles. So it's a partnership uh, with plenty of um, 12, I think, uh, academic journals um, that cover language learning literature. And authors who submit to these journals are then invited to write up um, a summary of their research that is um, accessible to practitioners. Prior, um, before that was set up, um, I was hired to work on the project to write um, some 60 plus um, summaries of different research articles. And all of that brought me to the Chartered College. So when the role of education research manager was advertised at the Chartered College, I really thought to myself, well, that's what I want to do. This really brings together research and practice. It really allows to bring the two worlds together, two worlds that I'm so passionate about. As a former practitioner, I'm still a teacher at heart. Um, I think teaching is the most amazing job there is. It is obviously um, extremely hard, but also extremely awarding. Having a role that allows me to bring together the research that I'm so passionate about with um, the education, really reflecting on how we can adapt some of the findings from um, research in education across disciplines in the classroom um, just seemed too good to be true, to be honest. Um, I was really glad when I got the job and since then I got to work on so many different exciting projects, just to name a few. So, for example, um, during Covid, uh, when school started to close for most students, my former colleague Gemma and I, together with a few other colleagues at the college, thought, what can we do? What can we do to support teachers and school leaders who are now facing this completely new world? Schools are closed um, to most students. We have to move to distance learning. What's the impact going to be on students and teachers um, of these school closures, depending on how long they're going to last? Back then, we had no idea how long they could last. So uh, my colleague Gemma Goldenberg and I um, sat down in a few very long nights, but to be fair, um, there wasn't much else that was going on given that it was the lockdown. 
number one back then. Um, and we sat down and we looked at the research literature um, that looked at previous crises such as earthquakes or, um, or hurricanes that have led to school closures and um, what the literature said about the, the impact that these crises have had on students and teachers. And we summarised um, this research literature. We looked at it both from um, an academic perspective, but also from a well-being perspective and uh, published what is known to the world as the first Education in Times of Crisis report, or lovingly called Beast Number One at the Chartered College, because it ended up being much, much longer um, than we anticipated it to be in the first place. And then we followed up um, this initial literature review with a survey uh, where we wanted to hear from teachers and thank you to everyone at this point who um, who replied to this survey, who completed it at a time that was where everything was in uproar and everything was just so different from, from what we knew. So thanks so much for taking the time. Your responses really allowed us to draw a picture and describe um, of what was going on in schools, how distance learning was working, how students were coping, some of the concerns that teachers had about their students. And this, pub uh, this report was published in May 2020. And that was when we as the Chartered College drew attention um, among as one among one of the first organisations at the time to teacher well-being. And we said teachers are putting so much effort into distance learning whilst also managing own care commitments um, for their own families, managing um, this difficult situation that is that is ongoing. That's something we already raised in our first report and it was reiterated. We were able to support it with data from responses from this survey. And that's something that we've been committed to um, ever since. And we've partnered with education support um, who are doing amazing work in the field of um, of teacher well-being so if you don't know them yet um, do look them up teacher um, education support they've got um, a support hotline that you can call which is free of charge if you're struggling with your well-being and I'm really glad that we got to partner with them on the project that ask teachers um, about different strategies that could support their well-being and what what they think the biggest impact uh, would be which strategy would have the biggest impact on their well-being and we published those um, those results. We wrote to the Secretary of State at the time um, and showed that there were a number of different issues, um, such as obviously we know that workload has a massive issue, but also the accountability system and others, and raised awareness around that. So again, that's why it's so important to us um, that teachers and school leaders, teaching assistants take the time to respond to our service because it really allows us to then present that data to policymakers, to decision makers, and share what teachers are thinking, um, what's going on in the classroom, which leads me um, to our second pair of reports um, in the Education in Times of Crisis series. In the first one, we explored um, effective approaches to distance learning. Again, a literature review, looking at what's out there, what we know about effective approaches to distance learning, as we knew that distance learning was um, going to continue for a while in schools, um, given how the pandemic was developing. And what we realised, um, together with my colleague Gemma Goldenberg at the time, was um, that really a lot of the literature um, stemmed from higher education rather than um, primary, let alone early years, but even secondary schools. So only a very little literature stemmed from upper secondary and so we thought, well, we really ought to ask teachers who are going through this, um, really ought to capture their expertise and their experiences with distance learning um, in order to share it, in order to inform um, further developments in, in the sector. And so we sat down and based on the literature that we had previously summarised, we came up with a list of different strategies that had been described as effective in the literature as supporting distance learning effectively. 
And um, again, we put that out to teachers. Again, thank you to everyone who responded to it because we were then, based on that, able to draw up a report in which we highlight um, which of these previously described strategies were um, perceived as being effective in the classroom by current teachers working across primary and secondary and early years and also in special educational settings and which were maybe perceived as um, slightly less effective. And we were able to, to also point to some potential phase-specific differences. Now, as always with these um, things, or as often as the case, as was the case with this um, this report, we um, had more um, secondary school teachers responding to our survey than primary and early years. So some of these conclusions, they're only tentative and um, it's more an invitation for researchers to go and um, explore these further in their projects. But it was really exciting to be able to capture the teacher expertise, to show um, everything, all the great work that's going on in classrooms up and down the country and showcase um, the expertise that teachers have developed and school leaders as a result of going through this crisis and how everyone's supporting students in their classrooms. So um, that's the, the fourth one in the education, fourth and last report in our Education in Times of Crisis series. But since then, um, as I said, so one of uh, one piece of work was um, around well-being. Um, we have also um, uh, conducted most recently uh, and something that I'm very excited to share soon, a cognitive science research priority setting activity, because um, we know that um, cognitive science uh, findings can potentially, we, we've got some understanding of uh, what teaching strategies that are informed from the cognitive sciences might work in the classroom. But um, for example, a, a report published by the EEF um, pointed out that we know um, slightly less about applied um, cognitive science. So we know well what can work in quite controlled experimental um, conditions, but slightly less about um, how that can pan out in a classroom, where of course um, classrooms are of course a lot more complex, a lot more um, different strategies, um, students from different backgrounds, etc. come together, which can complexify um, the use of these strategies. So what we wanted to know is um, from teachers is what questions they have when applying findings from the cognitive sciences in their context. And that's something that's called cognitive science um, or th that's called a research priority setting partnership. And they're actually quite popular in, um, in healthcare, also including speech and language therapy, for example. Um, colleagues from the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists have conducted um, a few of these. And the aim is for practitioners and patients in a, uh, in a case of healthcare to inform um, research priorities, to really take their lived experiences into account in order to close the research practice gap or at least to, um, um, to narrow it. Um, and so what we did is uh, we put a, a survey out there in which we asked teachers about um, the different cognitive science um, priority, different cognitive science strategies, sorry, that they use in their classrooms. Again, looking at um, phase-specific differences there, how effective they perceive them to be and how confident they are about using them. And then there was space um, for participants to provide us with up to three questions that they have when they implement cognitive science in their classroom. So that could range from something like, should I be starting every lesson with retrieval practice? What problems can I mix during interleaving? Um, to quite phase or subject specific questions. And we collected over 400 um, of these questions. And with my colleague, Vic Cook, we analysed them. We came up with um, a long list of 56 or 58 questions and have now whittled them down to the top 15 
um, research priorities um, that we will be will be presenting soon. So that will be one of our next podcasts um, where my colleague Vic will be joining us and we will be talking through the whole process of setting up a cognitive science research priority um, activity. Um, we will talk about the results and what they mean for research going forward. And we'll tell you a bit more about ongoing research um, at the college, what we're looking um, to do in the months to come, what the overarching priorities are, and um, also tell you a bit more about our approach of collecting um, the collective teacher expertise, sharing it, and why we believe that it's so important that teachers get a voice, that their expertise is showcased and shared in order to complement academic research um, and to open up the communication channels and further narrow the research practice gap, which is really what the college is all about. So thank you so much for listening in today. Um, I hope you found this interesting. It's a first introduction to the research department. Um, we will be hearing more from myself and my colleague Vic um, in the coming months when we will be giving, providing you with some updates um, of what's going on at the college, um, putting out some calls for participation. So keep an eye out, please on the newsletters and also our social media channels because it is we couldn't do we can't do we can't do our work without you um without your thoughts without your contributions and we really thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us whether it's in focus groups whether it's um replying to surveys really rely on you taking that time in order to get your voice heard Thank you so much. If you have enjoyed today's episode and would like to access more research evidence for your classroom, you can join the Chartered College of Teaching for as little as $1.96 per month at www.chartered.college. And remember to download TeacherTap free from your app or Play Store to share your views, opinions and experiences from the classroom. Every voice makes the picture clearer.